This morning we'll be finishing up this section, this series on the, the fruit of the Spirit, the life of the walk of the Spirit, as we're going through the book of Galatians. Galatians, first of all, spends a lot of time, as Paul convinces us, that Christianity is not just being religious. It's not about just following a bunch of rules and being a good person. It's not about joining up and obeying the rules, following the law. It's a relationship with Jesus Christ. And he develops that theme and destroys all notions that anything inferior to that is worth living for. And here, as he gets practical in chapter 5, he talks about walking in the Spirit. He says there's an option. You can walk in the flesh or you can walk in the Spirit. And the life of the flesh, as he described it for us several weeks ago, we went through it. It's a life of anger and bitterness, of unfaithfulness and failure. The last several weeks, we've been looking at the fruit of the Spirit. The life of walking in the Spirit that results in, as he says, love and joy, peace, long-suffering or patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And as we saw last week, winding up that section, he says, against such there is no law. In other words, if you have the Spirit working in your life and you're living a life of love and joy and peace and patience, you don't need a law. You don't need a whole bunch of rules. You just need that relationship that causes that work to happen in your lives. Now we're going to look at the last three verses of this chapter as he winds up this section and he and he gives us some really powerful insights into what a walk with the Lord is really all about, into really what it means to be a follower of Christ, to be a Christian. Verse, beginning with verse 24, he says, And those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, and envying one another. He here lays out, here's what this life is. He just showed what it looked like. It looks like love and joy and peace and all these other characteristics. But now as he describes the life for us and calls us to it, he begins by saying, those who are Christ's, that is, those who belong to Christ. And that, to me, is one of the most beautiful truths when we enter into a relationship with Jesus. But it's one of the most powerful descriptions of what our life ought to look like. We belong to him. We are, when we say, I am a Christian, we're saying, I belong to Christ. I am his. I am his possession. Paul said over in 1 Corinthians there, towards the end of chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians, he said, don't you get it? He said, you are not your own. You are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your members, in your body, and in your spirit. See, understanding that, that I don't belong to myself anymore, is one of the first steps toward freeing me up to being able to walk in the spirit. When I realize I don't belong to me, the burden comes off, really. I belong to him. I should bear in my life those characteristics that are his characteristics fruit of the Spirit, hey, all that is really is a description of God's character. And it's God's character that he wants to put in me. And when I belong to him, I start looking like him. 
I start to care the way he cares because I realize who I belong to. I realize that I am his property. Now, for some of us, that's a threat. I don't think I want to be anyone else's property. But the truth is, if you've been through much in life, you figure it out. You're everyone's property. Everyone owns a piece of you. Whether it's your employer, whether it's the government, whether it's the laws that are around us, whether it's those people who are depending on you, family and friends, the truth is you never were really independent. But when Jesus Christ bought us by shedding his blood for us on the cross, rising from the dead, demonstrating that he had victory over death, and he said, look, I did it for you. I paid this price for you. All of a sudden, there's this amazing revelation that now it's not just that I don't belong just to me. I don't belong to anyone else. I only belong to him. I am his child. I am his precious possession. I am his infinitely valuable expression of how much he cares. He sees me and he sees me as being a treasure. And that's amazing. So we belong to him, and, and that's where all of this is based, if we belong to him. But he says, those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Now, this gets kind of confusing when we go, wait a minute, the flesh was crucified? The, I mean, he talked about, okay, here's walking in the flesh, here's walking in the spirit. When we talk about having crucified the flesh, it sounds like really a stretch because, you know, the flesh is still acting all the time, running around like it's in charge, trying to take leadership and rule over our lives. It's true. When Jesus died, our flesh, as we were related to him, Paul said earlier in this book, as you remember, I am crucified with Christ. But he said, nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. The life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. See, when we identify with his death, it's another way of saying being a Christian. We not only acknowledge that we are his, but we as an act of our will, say, my flesh, I'm considering it dead. It doesn't have power or authority over me. But even though it's crucified, as you look at the list of things that are in the works of the flesh, hatred and contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, things like that, we go, but it's still acting alive. Yeah, it is. It's kind of like, and this is maybe sort of gross because most of us are city people, but John MacArthur in this passage talks about it, and it reminded me of when I was a kid. You ever see a chicken with its head cut off? I won't get too graphic, but I can still remember as a little kid, we had chickens in our yard, and the first time my grandmother came over and she was going to cook a chicken, and so I won't go into detail, but just trust me. When a chicken loses its head, it's dead, but it still runs around more than it ever did when it was alive. What's happening? It's really already dead. But its nerves are still reacting and it's looking for all the world to be very much alive. It can't. Its, it's brain is over on the ground. It, it's, not, it's not suffering anymore. It's really not a cruel thing at all. It's just 
one of those funny things where after it's killed, its nerves don't know that yet. And in a way, that's what the flesh is like for us. It's still acting, it's still threatening, it's still pretending. And yet the truth is, on the cross, it was defeated. It was removed. It's all over. But the flesh really doesn't know it's over yet. And it continues to talk big and to act tough. Those of you who are old enough to remember those Monty Python movies, there was that one guy who was in a sword fight and he was getting limbs cut off. Finally, he's just a torso on the ground. But the whole time, everything's being cut off of him and he's trash talking and acting like, you know, I'm going to get you, I, you know, you're not going to defeat me. That's the way our flesh is, kind of. Talking tough can't deliver. The truth is, the flesh can't help us. It's been defeated and crucified. And if your flesh, if my flesh hasn't been crucified, we really don't have the right to say, I belong to Christ. I'm a Christian. Because at some point we have to make the decision to not live in the flesh anymore. Now, what is the walk of the flesh? We, we see the works of the flesh, but in this verse, there are two words here. It says, they've crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. Now, each of those words is, in my opinion, a poor translation. And, and so you miss the description of what Paul is saying here. Um, when you look at what these words actually are, it makes a powerful description of what life is apart from Jesus Christ. Now, the word there for desires is the exact same word that's called lust earlier when it says you won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. It's the exact same word, so I don't know why they didn't translate it lust in our, in our version, but they translated it desires. What the word means is wanting something, pursuing something that is forbidden or that's not good for you. And so lust is this capacity that we've talked about before that causes us to want what isn't good for us. Now the other word there for passions interesting word. It's used, they translated it passions here because the word, the root of the word that's here is pathos, which a lot of times we think of that as strong emotions or feelings. But actually, this particular word is 15, 16 times in the New Testament, and every other place it's used, it's translated as either sufferings or afflictions. Suffering would be a better translation here. That's the that's the real, typical, base meaning of this word. Never translated passions anywhere else in the scriptures where it's used. Now, but permit me to translate it the way it should be. Here's the Dave translation. And now, here's why I believe so. It makes so much sense. Your suffering and your lust. Your lust meaning wanting things that aren't good for you. You're suffering, hey, that's what always goes hand in hand with lust. It's really the endless cycle, that vicious cycle that we were all in until we met Jesus Christ. As our decisions were made based on our lust, and the problem with our lust being corrupted is what we want naturally are things that generally aren't good for us. Oh, we may have better intentions, but the truth is, deep down inside, what we really want are things that are destructive. It's why God forbids certain things, because he cares about us and he knows they're destructive. But what happens when we follow that lust, when we go after it, it hurts. 
It's painful. It brings suffering and affliction, pain into our lives. And those two words put together refers to what it is that we should have crucified. Because we lived our lives in this endless cycle of, I want it, it hurts. I want it, it hurts. I'm going after it, but it makes me sick. I get it, but it's not satisfying. It's kind of like, well, you know how when you get depressed or something, you just, what do you want to do? You want to eat something that's really bad for you. At least I do. So you're driving down El Toro Road, feeling kind of empty, and there's Fuddruckers. Fuddruckers, it's, it, it's, it's the shaft that goes to hell, if it, because it's like, <laughs> you go in there and it's like, oh man, this is going to feel good. I know I'm going to do something that's, that's sinful, but you know what? Fuddruckers. I'm so glad they tore out everything on El Toro Road. That whole place is, looks, like a, looks like downtown Beirut, and yet Fuddruckers is still there. A city built around Fuddruckers. I like it. But you go in there, and they have the different burgers that are available. They have chicken sandwiches. I don't think they really have chicken sandwiches. They put them up there. I haven't seen a chicken in there ever. But you know, you look, and first they have the third-pound burger. And a third of a pound is kind of a big burger, you know. McDonald's quarter-pounder is, you know, thought of as a decent-sized burger. So third pound. But something about that third-pound piece of meat up against the half-pound, the three-quarter pound, and the full pound, it just looks like a girl's burger, you know. It's just like, <laughs> I'm not going to get... And plus, they're really tricky. They're like, the third-pound burger... You can only pay like 10 cents more and get the half pound. Another 20 cents and you get... So there you are. And This isn't autobiographical, by the way. It's just purely uh, hypothetical. You, <laughs> there you are with a full pound of burger. And if you get the fries, it's good because they give you a free cookie. And they, have those, <laughs> and they have those macaroons that are just incredible. Just solid lump of sugar, basically. And, and so... There you are, you got this big burger, and then you go over and they have all these condiments to put on it, and they have this nacho cheese stuff that's like, man, you just squeeze it away and all over your fries and all over the burger, and, and it's, it's, it's really a, a sick pleasure. <laughs> but I would defy anyone to walk out of Fuddruckers feeling good. It's just, you don't. You're walking out going... Why did I do this? As you're eating your macaron, it's just like, what happened? Man, it looked so good on the sign. And in my mind, it's like, you know, you're saying to your wife, we ought to come here more often. And you walk out to your car and you go, I'm never going there again. But isn't that really ultimately what our lives were like before we met Jesus? I want this. I know it's not good for me, but I want it. And you get it and go, this hurts. This is painful. Why did I do this? Why did I indulge in this way? And Paul is saying here, you signed off on that life. You crucified it. You made the decision to say, I am not going to live in that vicious cycle anymore. I'm putting it away. And now I belong to Jesus. Now I am his possession. And I want to live life with him. 
what a graphic description really is. He says, those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its pain and its lust, its pain and its desire. And then in verse 25, there's an interesting and powerful really shift in Paul's approach. Before this, he's been saying, you, 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 you. He, he says, uh, you know, walk in the Spirit in verse 16, and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Verse 17, so that you don't do the things that you wish. In verse 18, if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the... And so on, all the way down, and even again... In the third person, in verse 24, those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. But now in verse 25, he makes it first person plural, and he says, if we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited and so forth. Paul is now winding up his description of the Spirit-filled life and his instructions on how to get there. And so now, so that he doesn't sound like he's speaking from some ivory tower and just telling everyone else what to do, he includes himself in it and he goes, this is something, the spirit-led life is something that we need to do together. It's not you, 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 it's us, it's we. This is something that we need to get together on as a body and we need to understand this and comprehend it. And so he says, if we live in the spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. When we accepted Jesus Christ, He gave us life. Paul talks about this before when he says, you began in the Spirit. What happened? He started off right. It was being born of the Spirit. It's getting a new, fresh start by the Spirit of God. But Paul's here saying, look, we're saying that that's our life. We're calling ourselves Christians. We're saying we belong to him. We're claiming that we've crucified that vicious cycle, that self-destructive life that we lived. And he goes, but you know what? If we are living in the Spirit, if that's how we live, he said, let's walk in the Spirit. Let's be daily, moment by moment, step by step, functioning as if we believe what we say we believe. Someone has said, I can't remember, it was a, a woman poet who, who made the statement that, that uh, she said, how we spend our days is, of course, how we spend our life. We can so often have this great concept about life, but we need to face the fact that how we spend our days today is how we spend our life. And boy, Paul here is just going, look, if we want to live, let's walk. Let's do it on a daily basis. Let's see that today we are plugged into the Spirit of God, that we are allowing Him to work in our lives. If what we say we want in the long run is a walk in the Spirit, then let's take those steps today that will put us there that will give us that reality. Because all of the ivory tower theorizing about life in the Spirit and about here's our commitment and we are Christ and fruit of the, all that, it means nothing if it's not happening today, if it's not happening right now. And so Paul says, let's get together on this. If this is where we say our life is, let's see that we walk it right now. And that is his exhortation to us. And I am not telling you, 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 you. I'm saying we. 
we as Christians, we as families, we as a church, this is something that if we don't do it, it's not going to happen. And if we don't do it today, it's not going to magically happen tomorrow. This is a decision that we make moment by moment for a walk in the Spirit, for being in relationship to Him, to allow Him to work these qualities into our lives. And then as, as he goes into the last verse here, again, let us not become conceited. That seems sort of, I don't know, out of place to me. We're lifting up to this great spiritual place. We belong to Christ. That past, it's crucified. And here we are. We're living in the Spirit. We're walking in the Spirit. And then he goes, oh, by the way, we shouldn't become conceited. That word there, two words put together, one of them means empty or vain, and the other means glory or celebrate. There was an old English word, vainglory, that said this exactly right. Conceited isn't a bad approach either. But you've got to go, why is it that he goes from this walk in the Spirit to, and lets us not be conceited? First of all, you go, Paul conceited? Oh, I can't imagine. But Paul must have understood that that was a threat to him. The truth is, it's probably the first threat to anyone who starts becoming spiritual. It's probably the greatest threat to anyone who wants really to walk in the Spirit. Because we feel like, wow, God is just blessing us. He's done so much for us. And our next natural reaction is to look at the poor people who don't know what we know, who aren't experiencing what we experience, and to look down on them. We need to understand this. We need to understand this. Being spiritual does not lift you up to a higher plane. Lose that metaphor. Being spiritual lowers you to a lower plane. What? Tony Robbins never told me that. No. But Jesus did. Look at his example. He, he didn't lift himself up at all. He humbled himself to teach us what true spirituality really is. Paul said it like this in Philippians. He said, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, didn't think it robbery to be equal with God, but he emptied himself. He took upon himself the form of a servant, humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. If you had the idea that being spiritual means rising above everyone else, lose that idea and lose it now. The only reason for us to be spiritual is so that God can use us in the lives of other people. And all those people who are way up here, they don't want to hear what you have to say. It's lowering ourselves to the level of a child that gives us any kind of effectiveness that allows us to really meet needs. So often, we want to minister to the, you know, those who are high on the, on the totem pole. Nobody really wants to go and minister to people who have desperate needs. You know, people with great needs are really obnoxious. They're annoying. You pray for them, and they keep coming back with the same problems. And you're like, man, why can't I just minister to normal people? And God goes, that's your problem. That's what you're looking for. Who do you think you are? 
I, I saved you so that you could reach those people who need me the most. And real spirituality will always allow you to bring yourself down to the level of others. Fake spirituality will cause you to rise above others. It's what turns people off to Christianity so much is that as soon as people start getting spiritual, they become conceited. They have this puffed-up nature about them, this austere sort of distance about them. And if you don't act that way, they judge you. You ought to be as high as I am. As a pastor, I get this sometimes. People don't think that a pastor ought to joke around or walk the edge. It's like, come on, we want you to be up in the, in the stars so we can bow down and worship you until you fall, then we'll walk all over you. But, you know, that's chapter two. Where do we get the idea that spirituality could ever be associated with pride? We were looking last Wednesday night in Proverbs 6. Six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to him. And what's the first one? A proud look. Now, how many spiritual people have you seen that have a proud look? How many times have we been guilty of that ourselves? God hates it. It's an abomination to him. And so Paul reminds us together. He goes, let's not do this. It is a natural pitfall that comes as soon as you get on the walk to spirituality. As soon as you're drawing close to the Holy Spirit, allowing Him to work in your lives, God's speaking to you, and He's doing powerful things in your life, and He's blessing you, and everything's kind of lining up and going right. Be careful, because the very next step that's there that you have to jump over or you'll fall in is pride and conceit. And so Paul said, hey, one thing that real spirituality isn't it's that arrogance, it's that superiority, it's that separation that says, I'm better than you are. So he says, let's not do that. Secondly, he says, let's not provoke one another. Provoking is just calling somebody out, picking a fight. The word in the Greek there is pro or forward and kaleo, which is call. The English word provoke comes from the Latin words that mean the same thing. Pro coming forward, and the voke part comes from the same word from which we get our word voice. It's a Latin word that became a French word that became an English word. But what it means is, is just to call somebody out, call somebody forward. Now, if you don't exactly know what that looks like, there's a great illustration. And... Uh, I, and most of you probably would be disgusted by these TV shows, but there's one called The Contender that Sugar Ray Leonard is the host of, and they have these two teams of boxers, and each week somebody else, what happens is they line up both teams, and one of the guys goes to the center of the ring, and then they look around, and nobody knows who they're going to pick, and they call out one of the other guys. That guy comes and gets right in his face and, and stares at him, and they're both looking really tough, and then they hug and shake hands, and they fight later on that night. But it's a great picture. You also see it on the Ultimate Fighter that uh, starts up again this Thursday night on the Spike Network. But, uh, <laughs> but, it's, but, you know, we can look at that and go, what a way to live your life. And yet, 
Spiritually, how often do we do just that? Do we live our lives by calling people out? By making them step forward? Saying things that pick a fight with somebody? Making a statement that you know is going to be controversial, that you know is going to lead to conflict? Where does that come from? It comes from that conceit that causes you to want to be right and that causes you also to want to show that everyone else is wrong. I don't know about you, but sometimes I, I have this thing where it's like, I feel like if I see someone who's wrong, I just have to correct them. I really try to fight, fight against that, though, because I know how annoying it is when people do that to me. But, you know, you're sitting there in a public place, and somebody's two guys are talking, and they say something really stupid, and the other one agrees. And you just feel like, no, you can't think that and you want to correct them. You want to just step forward and say, well, actually, I, it's, I don't like those kind of people, and I really don't like it when I'm that kind of person. And again, it comes out of conceit. The truth is, all around you, there are people who are wrong. It's not your job to fix them. It's not your job to correct them, or mine either. Most of the time, if you are right and they are wrong, when you correct them, they're not going to believe you and they're not going to appreciate it anyway. And the truth is, if they're doing the wrong thing, they'll figure it out eventually. And also, how do you know that you are right? The worst thing is when you correct someone and they turn out to be right. So Paul would just say, let's just shut up. And let's not call people out. Let's not choose people off. Let's not, let's do it, you know. Now let's go for it. It's not, you know, life isn't a hockey game where just every once in a while in order to get a break, you throw your gloves off and pull somebody's shirt over their head and you pound on each other. Nobody gets hurt and, and all the other guys are standing around. Okay, we're ready to play hockey again. Sometimes that's the way we live our lives. And, and Paul would remind us, listen, if you're walking in the Spirit, day by day relating to Him, you're not going to be calling people out. You don't need to fix everyone. Now, there are some times when you need to speak up and someone really does need your help. And next Sunday, we will see how to do that in Galatians 6. It flows right into it. But so many times, as one of the first requirements in Galatians 6, it says, if your brother's caught up in a fence, you who are spiritual, there's the tie-in. Are you really acting in a spiritual way? Do you really think that this is something that the Spirit is calling you to? But as a basic rule, Paul is saying, let's not call each other out. Let's not look for reasons to fight. Let's not find differences. I've talked before as we've gone through the, the uh, list of the fruit of the Spirit. There are plenty of times when I thought I was defending God, fighting for God. And in reality, I don't really need to fight for God. He, he doesn't need my help. He, he can take care of himself. He doesn't need me to defend him. And, and so Paul would say, you know, hey, if we're walking in the Spirit, don't be conceited and don't be provoking. Don't be looking for a fight. And then finally, not envying one another. That word for envy is an interesting one. At its basic root, it's a word that means shrivel, <laughs> And really, that's what envy does to you and how the word developed etymologically. If you are consumed with someone else 
and you're worried about them and you're wanting what they have or you're resentful of them in some way, they are your enemy. That doesn't puff you up at all. It shrivels you ultimately. It sucks the life right out of you to be envious. It's just like bitterness. If you're bitter against someone, it'll destroy you. It won't hurt them at all. I mean, if someone's bitter against me, it doesn't hurt me that much. In fact, whatever it is that I offended them about, now I'm kind of glad I did it. Because look how bitter they are against me. That shows their nature. Envy is like that. Oh, I want what someone else has. Again, where does it come from? It comes from comparing yourself to others, and that's what the Bible tells us. Jesus said, you're not to do that. That's a Gentile thing. Stop comparing yourselves among yourselves. And so that walk in the Spirit, it's a walk that has these pitfalls along the way. The pitfall of pride, conceit. And, and, and that's something that then leads to picking fights with people. And that, in turn, if you lose, you're envious. You're, you're wanting to have a certain image, a certain depiction of yourself, and when that doesn't happen and you're let down, you don't care that you have this identity where you belong to the king of kings. You feel sort of shorted. Life hasn't treated you well. But it all comes back to walking in the Spirit. And Paul would say to us and would remind all of us, look, you got saved from that stupid cycle of hurting yourself and wanting more. And you belong to Jesus. You're his. You don't need to live that way anymore. You crucified that lifestyle. And he goes, so now, come on, how about a walk? How about a day-to-day relationship with God that can deliver you from that trap and that can build into your life these characteristics of the fruit of the Spirit? You can be delivered from yourself. You can be delivered from the way that you've been damaging yourself. And Paul would say, let's just do this. I love that he doesn't just lecture us and act like he's arrived. Paul talks like a guy who realizes that every day he is fighting to walk in the Spirit. And what he's fighting, not everybody else, he's fighting himself. He's fighting that stupid flesh. He's fighting his tendency to become prideful and combative. And he would say with us, come on, let's not do that. Let's walk in the Spirit. If that's our life, that should be our days. Let's pray. Lord, when we read what you expect of us, it becomes very obvious to us that what you expect is exactly what you demonstrated. And God, we, we do want to have that quality of life, that true spiritual reality, the fruit growing from our lives, love, joy, peace. Lord, we want that. So help us to turn our backs on that dead life that we used to live. Help us to get out of that hamster wheel and walk daily with you. And when we get a little conceited, we start to feel superior. Lord, bring someone across our path who will remind us. And 
However you want to do that, if you want to bring a truly humble person before our path or a child so that we can be reminded of what you want of us, that's great. But Lord, this week, if you need to bring someone even more obnoxious than us across our path, then you can do that too. We want to avoid these pitfalls and walk simply in the Spirit. We don't want to be offensive and an affront to you. Lord, we want people to see us and to see you. To be amazed, not by what we know and not by our level of spirituality, but by our approaching them on their level with a love and a joy and a peace and a patience and a gentleness and a goodness, faith, meekness, and self-control that they just haven't witnessed. Lord, I pray this week that you'll bring into our paths some people who have never seen real spirituality, only the religious caricature of it, and help them to be surprised at our difference and your difference. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand. There might be people here today who have never really even entered into a relationship with Jesus Christ. And I want to invite you to do that today. This would be a great time to do it. He promises to come in and forgive your sins and to save you and to